So welcome, welcome to the March edition of the RFB Coaching Luncheon. I'm very excited to have you all here today. And I'm really excited about this. Claire has heard me talk about this for quite some time. She normally gets to hear me talk about all the books I read and some interesting tidbit that I've gotten out of the most recent book. And I don't know if she finds it as fascinating as I have. But what I've tried to do, I, I always keep a note on my phone where I enter in all the most interesting things that I've found more recently. And it's generally, it's hard to follow because they're not always all about the same topic. So it might, one might be about, you know, performance, one might be about nutrition, one might be about a survival situation, something like that. And what I've tried to do is compile them all here today together. So, so you know, as a coach, I read a lot of books, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and I research a lot of topics that are all related to human performance and to maximizing potential in that area. And so I also look at how the lessons learned from endurance sports carries over into other areas of life. And I've, as you know, I have firsthand experience with that about how there's not much difference between survival type situations, whether it's you fell into a crevasse or you get cancer versus endurance sports. In other words, there's a recurring theme in all these topics that I'm drawn to and that I've had experience with. And most of the books I read are survival or adventure stories or their books about endurance activities and concepts and what I've realized over time is that there's really a huge correlation and crossover between those two subjects and the interesting thing is like survival achievements often begin as endurance attempts at endurance feats and then they turn into survival and in many cases there's a very fuzzy line between what is a survival situation and what is an endurance a selected endurance event as Todd well knows from his Ironman experience. So today what we're going to do is we're going to just uh, take study and look at some stories and find out what these stories tell us, some of the interesting people and stories I've kind of come across in these books. We're going to try to just um, talk about some of the science, either most recent or old school science, that kind of often proves or even disproves um, some of the preconceived notions that we have about all this kind of stuff and we're going to try to identify how to apply the things we learn to our own lives so I was trying to think of a way to title all this all these things and so that's where I came up with extreme achievement because a lot of these things are just different extreme achievement is just different types of things and it's extreme situations and that's what we like to put ourselves in when we do Ironman or marathon and sometimes life puts you in that situation and sometimes you find yourself on a glacier in the middle of on a mountain in Alaska and you're in a survival situation and uh, I want to talk about how all those things are um, kind of linked together so what I did here was I did a study of what I call extreme achievement I found that there's really two types um, and the two types that I've, I've categorized these myself as survival and selective and the interesting thing about say so and, and then we're going to talk about lessons um, from stories of each type. Then we're going to get into some of the science, and we're going to try to find some real-life applications. So the interesting thing about survival, let me talk about what I mean when I say extreme achievement survival types. Now, these are life-or-death situations where not continuing will result in death or serious injury. And this means that full commitment to achieving the goal is absolutely necessary and not optional. Then we have extreme achievement selective. These are more of the things that we generally find ourselves doing. 
these are non-life-threatening situations, but these are situations where suffering, pain, and fatigue are all present, but there's always an option to quit. You know, that will not result in death or serious injury. So it's really quite a dichotomy between the two because in some, if you, if you quit, you die, and in, in survival and in selective, if you quit, you feel better, generally. But what I found is there's an incredible crossover between the two. So endurance sports and survival situations share many common characteristics. And really, what I found is that the same survival instinct is present to varying degrees in all the different things in both of those things. So for example, you know, you may not have a desire to climb Mount Everest or to trek to the South Pole, but your desire to run a fast marathon or do an Ironman draws on the same similar, same or similar mental or physiological requirements. So let's get started with what I call the myth of physiological limits. And what I've learned about is we all think we have physiological limits, but we're mostly wrong about where they lie. Um, so what I did in each of these, I found a case study. So let's first talk about Dean Karnazes. Has everybody here heard of Dean Karnazes? Has anyone not heard of Dean Karnazes? So Dean, um, some of his accomplishments, there's far too many to list, but the ones I have here are he did 50 marathons in 50 states in 50 days. He once ran 350 miles without sleeping. He competed in multiple times and may have even won the Badwater Ultra Marathon, which is 135 miles across Death Valley finishing at the top of Mount Whitney at 14,000 feet. It's insane. And he's actually run to the South Pole. I don't know the distances in there. Um, what's interesting about Dean is the way, two stories, the way he got started really running was he was on his 32nd birthday. He was working in maybe an ad agency or something in San Francisco. He was out at a bar with his friends partying on his birthday. He was drinking tequila, having a good time. And one of his friends challenged him to run 32 miles or 30 miles home and said, you can't do it. And he's like, oh, I can totally do that. And he did it, and he made it. And there was no reason he should have been able to do that. He had no physiological background that showed that he, you know, no experience that said he should have been able to do that, but he made it. And long story short, that changed his life. Pretty quickly thereafter, he quit the ad agency and became the ultra-marathon man and started achieving all these amazing things. He's written books. He's really, he's, I've met him. It was pretty exciting. Um, but the interesting thing about his the physiological limits, obviously just from his accomplishments, you can see he's accomplished more than should really, we, most people would physiologically be able to do, at least we think. But in his, in his book about the 50 marathons, 50 states, his 50th marathon was in New York, the New York Marathon, and it was his fastest marathon. He ran it faster than all the previous 49. He talked about in the book how instead of getting weaker every time he ran, he just grew stronger and stronger. So by the end, he ran, like I said, he ran his fastest marathon. Not only that, he felt so good after all that that his wife and kids flew home to San Francisco. Instead, instead of flying home, he started running back across the country just because he wasn't, he wasn't mentally, he wasn't done running yet. He, hadn't, he wasn't running. So he said, I'm just going to run home from New York to San Francisco. And this is where I find it interesting. He made it to St. Louis, and in St. Louis, he just, almost like Forrest Gump, just kind of said, you know what, I'm done running. Yeah, I didn't, physiologically, he wasn't finished. He just said, I'm done. I'm going to fly home and spend time with my family. He started on my book. So, you know, the physiological limits, he did all that and never even reached his physiological limits. It was his brain that said, all right, let's just go home and eat a snack. So that's what he did. So the other one is Aaron Ralston. <clears throat> I've been fascinated by this story forever. Is everybody familiar with Aaron Ralston? 
So there's a movie made about this not that long ago called 127 Hours. If you ever want to watch something that will be, it'll test your ability to watch a movie without, you know, vomiting or crying, this might be the one you want to watch. Aaron Ralston was an amateur mountaineer. He's an engineer, and he was making attempts to summit all 59 14ers in winter. 14er is a 14,000-foot peak. There's 59 of them in the United in the continental United States. And the thing is, people try to get all the 14ers. His uh, his goal was to do them in winter. Well, in training for that one summer, he went out to Utah in a slot canyon. He was doing some canyoneering, and he made mistakes. He didn't tell anybody where he was going. He parked his he parked his truck a long ways away, rode his bike in, got in the canyon. And what he did was he found a rock that he, and he had to drop about 10 feet down. There was a rock wedged between the canyon walls. He tested it with his feet a couple times. He turned on it, pivoted around, and slid down, dropping feet first. And when he did, the boulder rolled backwards, and he fell onto his feet. And the boulder started bouncing between the wall. He got, at one point had both his hands trapped, but he got one out. And the other hand grew trapped, as you can see, just right in front of him. So now he had just about a day's worth of water. He was trapped. He had a video camera. He had some lines and some rigging. So as an engineer, he tried to set it up so he could unwedge the boulder, couldn't get it done. Realized he was in pretty, pretty bad shape. Started making videos, saying goodbye to his family, all this stuff. Hadn't told anybody where he was going, so nobody really knew where he was. They just knew he was somewhere in a canyon in Utah. Uh, he had a little tiny, little one-inch pocket knife. And at some point, and after a couple days, he tried to cut his arm off. He tried to just test it to see if it would cut. And he quickly realized there was no way he was cutting his arm off with a little one-inch dull you know, Swiss Army knife. So he waited. He started. He ran out of water. He ran out of food. He was drinking his own urine. He was, I mean, he was, he was done. He was a goner. And his arm was not broken. It was just squished in between the two rocks. So Aaron, the last night, I think it was after five nights, he was getting hypothermic at night, it was getting cold. He thought he was gonna die. So he, um, he thought this was the last night he'd go to sleep. So he made a video saying goodbye to his family. He scratched his initials in the wall. But that night he had a vision of a little boy that he thought was gonna be his future son. And so he woke up that morning, it was probably a hallucination, he woke up that morning and realize the only way he's getting out of here is if he cuts his arm off. And the only way he's getting his arm off is if he breaks the bones first. So in that little tiny canyon, he started pulling on his arm. First one bone broke, and then he had to pull again and break the second bone. Now he, he's fully committed. There's no, nothing, there's no other way to go but just keep going. So now he gets out his tiny pocket knife, and he starts sawing through whatever he can, ligaments and skin and tendons, and eventually ending with, and now he's bleeding. He's got a tourniquet on, but he's bleeding profusely. So he finally, cut, he has to cut a nerve. He finally cuts the nerve, and he falls back, and he's loose. Now he's cut his arm off. He's bleeding terribly, and he still has to hike about three or four miles down the canyon. Then he has to rappel 60 feet out of the canyon. Then he would have had to make it about seven or eight miles back to his bike, at which point he'd have to ride back to his truck, at which point he'd have to try to reach somebody. Now, this is 2003, so I imagine there was no cell service. Then he would have had to try to drive his truck back. There's no chance of him really living. Luckily, when he rappelled out of the canyon, he found a little bit of water. Of course, it was poisoned with a dead crow in it somehow. 
but he drank it anyway. He went a little farther and he was rescued by a couple who spotted him who had been alerted that there was a missing hiker in the area. Hour or so later, they gave him some water. An hour or so later, a helicopter came in, picked him up, took him out. They said he shouldn't have lived. He had lost about 25% of his blood volume. He was incredibly dehydrated. But really, if you think about it, there's no way he should have been able to do that from a physiological perspective. You know, I would do a 16-mile run, and I think I can't run a 17th mile. But Aaron Ralston found a way to cut his arm off and hike and rappel out of a canyon. So clearly, there's more to our physiological limits than we really think there are. So let's try to understand the truth of physiological limits. So the first thing is, what science tells us is that physiological limits are elastic. And those two examples kind of tell us that their physiological limits have, in some cases, have taken them much farther than they ever thought they could. So they've overcome something. Somewhere, somehow, they're finding this power to get past what they think are their physiological limits. So we've learned that what I mean by elastic is that limits change based on training load and desire. And one of the th um, recurring themes in most all, in much recent science about endurance um, achievements is uh, something that Tim Noakes came up with, which was a central governor model. And his model says the brain places the limits on the body and not the other way around. And I don't necessarily, not everybody agrees that central governor is the right word for it, but the concept remains the same. So most scientists that use this concept are somewhere in that same. There's something in the brain or in the mind. Noakes kind of says it's one little thing. Somewhere in your brain we haven't discovered that is a central governor. Other people think it's environment, it's physiological. Your brain is processing tons of information and making decisions based on what it finds, which probably makes a little more sense to me. The reason they think this is because they've done a ton of scientific studies. Studies have proven things that, that show that the mind is the powerful part, is overpowering. So aside from the case studies we just looked at, they know that doubt hinders performance. If, if, if it was really just man as machine, doubt wouldn't hinder your performance because all that would matter is hydration, nutrition, training, and then you go out. Marathons would be really boring if performance wasn't affected by your brain because you'd know who's going to win every time. You'd say, well, that guy's going to win because he's got, it would just be, we're not robots. Um, you can fool your body with fake hydration. This is one Todd and I are probably interested in because we sweat so incredibly in summer that it's almost impossible to drink enough. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. Um, one of the other big realizations, and I think we all kind of can understand this to a certain extent, but it's kind of a backwards thinking. We generally think that physiological strain is what drives perceived effort. The truth is, through all the tests they've done, that perceived effort is what causes physiological strain. So think about it, anytime you've gone out where you feel really good, um, and then you go in thinking you're going to feel bad, but you end up feeling good, or vice versa. Your body responds to how your expectations are, and we'll get into more of that a little later too. Pain tolerance. Pain tolerance, we all think we're either born with a high or low pain tolerance, and sometimes you see somebody doing something, you're like, man, I wish I was as tough as them. The way they got tougher was through training. Pain tolerance goes up or down accordingly, and it will go up or down based on your training load and what you're doing. So when you see somebody like Dean Carnazes who's really tough, he might just start with a naturally higher pain tolerance, but the truth is he's just made himself tougher because he's pushed, he's pushed closer to his physiological limits than we have. And they've also proven that subliminal positive and negative images thoughts and environments have a direct impact on results. 
this is really important because to me this this is as a coach this is a, a result of what a coach can do for you I'm not you know we're in a coaching luncheon so that of course I'm gonna say that but what they did a study of was they studied they did some cyclists on a on time to exhaustion test and they flashed Tim Noakes did this years ago they would flash subliminal messages on a screen of either smiley faces or frowning faces and the, the images only lasted for a sixteenth of a second so they weren't really processed by the eyes in other words the people didn't really see that they well, they didn't know they saw it, it was subliminal and there was a significant difference in time to exhaustion from the people who saw smiley faces versus the time that saw frown the people that saw frowny faces and this has been repeated multiple times so just by seeing smiling faces you perform better one of the things I always put in my race rules before I, for I tell people, I have this on, my, on the training program files, is just smile. Sometimes when you feel terrible, just smile. Just force yourself to smile. I did this last weekend in a marathon because I was in a lot of, I was not doing well. And I just forced myself to smile. And I would smile at people that were coming towards me because it would make me feel better and I was hoping it would make them feel better as well. So, conclusions. You are not none of us are reaching our physiological potential and frankly you're not even close I know we think we're close because we've done things like marathons and Ironman and stuff but we're really not even close Aaron Ralston didn't demonstrated that by lopping his own arm off and then doing and then doing things that we probably couldn't physiologically do right now this is one I found interesting and this I thought about this a lot and I like it and it's true and I think you'll recognize it but fatigue is a balance between effort and motivation so think about when you go to a race. You always expect to get more out of yourself on race day. Well, why? I mean, some of it might be that you're, but some of it might be physiological, but a lot of it is just more motivation, the adrenaline, the people in the crowd, everything's, things change physiologically a little bit. For the most part, it's a balance between effort and motivation. I mean, you feel a lot more tired when you don't want to do something than when you want to do something. Um, what Noakes has found and what a lot of these um, studies have found is that exhaustion or fatigue is often a conscious choice rather than a mechanical failure. This one still just always baffles me a little bit, but studies have kind of proven this. So the question is, we have to figure out how we can get past that because there are, there's somewhere in here there are ways where we can mentally get, push ourselves past the point where mechanical failure, past mechanical failure because our brain is, is, um, telling our body what to do um, so the other thing is your relationship with fatigue is not based on how you feel but on how you feel about how you feel does that make sense I like that one the first time I heard it I was like that does make oh that does make sense it makes a lot of sense yeah, how you expect to feel versus how you actually feel is a huge difference if you go out and you expect to feel great and you feel bad it's gonna go bad there's no way there's it's hard to get out of that and then that now that's heat hydration extreme cold muscle condition these are all real but the truth is their effect is mediated either a little bit or greatly by perception of effort they don't force you to slow down but they cause you to want to slow down so your own firewalk Matt Fitzgerald in how bad do you want it uses an on analogy over and over about imagine your endurance journey imagine it's a long room like this one and at the far end of the room is your physiological limits and you're wherever you are back here and you're it's it's hot coals all the way across and every time you go out and do an endurance event you're trying to cross those hot coals and get all the way to your physiological limit but something overcomes you the heat 
exhaustion, the fear, something overcomes before you get to that physical limit. And almost never does anyone reach their physiological limit. Aaron Rawlston probably came as close as anyone can get to reaching their physiological limit. This means we're not even close. Even the most, the biggest, most amazing thing we've accomplished, we're probably not even close. So what can you do about this? First of all, you want to find differentiators that can have a 2 to 3% impact on pushing back your limits. And what that means is you, whether it's some mental training, meditation, praying, um, joining a different group, anything that can help you overcome whatever your limits are. And that those have to be little things for you. It could be nutrition. It could be hydration. It could be just smiling at yourself in the mirror every day. You have to find differentiators that work to make you better and to push your limits back. Um, focus on the fundamentals of whatever you're doing. Get good at what you're doing. Train hard. The end result of all these things is you have to work harder. If you want to achieve something extreme, you have to work harder. If Aaron Ralston wasn't willing to work a little harder and cut off his own arm, he would not be here today. So you have to train harder. Dean Carnazza said that. You just, nothing, nothing replaces hard work. You can improve by 2 or 3% by finding these differentiators, but if you get tougher and you learn to suffer and endure until it becomes normal, the more you suffer and endure. Um, Samuel Marcor is another scientist. He talks about training when you're mentally fatigued. You actually get more. They've proven that you get more physically when you train after you are mentally fatigued. So he's actually invented a protocol of brain training where you actually do all these mental um, tasks and little, you basically have to sit down and focus and he, you do real mundane things on this and then, then you go train. So the first part of his training is mental fatigue. So he fatigues you mentally and then you go out and do the physical part and what you're doing there is you're basically you're pre-stressing your brain and making yourself mentally fatigued and his argument is you're getting more training because that mental fatigue is the exact same as far as your brain is concerned as the mental fatigue you get when you're actually out running and getting tired. So he says you can basically, if you train your brain, you should be able to theoretically get the same results as you do when you're out running because your brain is your big limiter. If you train your brain, you might not even have to go do the run and they did studies where they basically have shown that people who do this brain training, they do a time trial on a bike or on something, they do brain training for 30 days, they go back and do the time trial and they improve. Well, what's changed? The only thing that's changed is their mental approach, their mental fatigue. They're more used to it, they've suffered, they've endured. And the other thing you want to do is become a habitual limit breaker. And this is something I've tried to do over the years, I'm not that good at it. Find little limits, little things that you have that are limiters for you, and break them. So, like for me, I've always wanted to be an early morning workout guy. I've always wanted to be a guy that gets up at 4:30 and just hammers out like an hour and a half bike trainer ride. Like I want to do that. I see other people do it, and I'm like, that's I can't do that. But I always want to. So what I should be doing is break that limit. I should say, you know, for the next six months, I am going to be early morning workout guy. I'm going to break that limit. It doesn't have to be anything that extreme. It could be something with nutrition, it could be something, it could be anything, it could be little tiny achievements, something you can break. And then once you start breaking them, the theory is you, it's just a habit. And pretty soon that becomes something you just do. So let's move on to how bravery and courage come into uh, extreme achievements. So first we're going to talk about uh, Alex Honnold. Who here has heard of Alex Honnold? Everybody, Alex Honnold is 
amazing. I got his book here alone on the wall. Alex Honnold is a world-renowned free solo climber. <clears throat> if you saw him, you would think that he just, you know, was the barista down the street at your local coffee shop. He doesn't look like one of the world's greatest athletes. He is the first person to ever free solo El Capitan in Yosemite, which I think is about a half a mile sheer granite wall. And he, free soloing, is climbing with absolutely no safety gear, harnesses, anything. It's totally free solo. It is you and your fingers, your climbing shoes, and maybe some, a chalk bag. And there's no way out. Once you're halfway up there, there's no getting off the mountain. You have to keep going. This takes a lot of bravery and courage. Honnold has some interesting takes on it. I've heard him interviewed, and he's, he talks about adrenaline. People say, oh, you must, you must be adrenaline junkie. And he says, absolutely not. Like, I'm the opposite. I don't, if I feel adrenaline on the wall, that means something is wrong, not good. He's just learned to harness his bravery and his courage to bring himself up there and commit fully to this. He has to commit fully. There's no, for lack of a better term, half-ass in climbing. I mean, if you're halfway up, you're, it's either death or go on. And this is where I talk about these blurring these lines between survival and achievement or selective achievement because there's situations you put yourself in where full commitment is necessary. Now, none of us are going to do exactly what Honnold does here, I don't think. If, that, if you do, that would be awesome. It was nice knowing you. <laughs> but uh, that level of commitment, the, the lesson here for me, at least, is the level of commitment it takes. If you, you have to find ways to fully commit and you have to be brave about it because it's going to be fear. There's going to be things that scare you about that full commitment. So Ernest Shackleton, um, Ernest Shackleton in 1911 was attempting to be one of the first people to reach the South Pole. He was from England. He took a big crew um, on a boat called the Endurance, of course. And uh, their ship was frozen in ice and destroyed. And I have a, kind of an unhealthy fascination with Arctic survival, so you'll probably see there might be a recurring theme. With mountaineering, people freezing to death, it's just fascinating to me. So sorry, Claire. So Shackleton's uh, ship was frozen in ice. They waited and waited till spring. They, they were hoping the ice would eventually release um, the boat. And obviously, at this point, nobody had reached the South Pole. That, was, that would happen a year or two later. Um, their boat was destroyed. So what Shackleton did was he and about 12, 13 other crew members hopped in. A, they, rescued, they got a lifeboat off their ship. They started, they went out into the, I guess this is the Indian Ocean. And they paddled for 14 days, or they rowed in an open boat in Antarctic water filled with icebergs in one of the roughest places in the world. They rowed over to South America, at which point they had to travel about 850 miles to get to a whaling station who could then send rescue. And at some point, I, I, I have to get more into this story here because it's amazing, but then they had to make the trip back, bringing provisions. So Shackleton, it was, he, was just, he was widely known as just being brave and courageous. And so he did, that route, he did that trip twice to go back and rescue his crew. No members of his crew perished. Um, but just to go out there, I, I didn't put this up here, but when he put a, in 1910 or 1909, when he was planning for the expedition, he put up an ad that said he wants people to come on this expedition. And what he basically said was it was low pay, good chance of death, you're probably not coming back, like all these bad things. But it's going to require bravery and courage and you probably be famous when you get back and I just thought that was interesting and so the quote on the bottom says those who are bold enough to go after what they want enjoy greater success and happiness Shackleton had a lot of failures he never reached the South Pole but he's widely considered one of the bravest and most courageous people 
um, explorers that we know, and a lot of people learn a lot of lessons from him. So what is bravery? What is courage? They're basically the same thing. Bravery and courage is not the absence of fear. It's the willingness to act in spite of your fear. And saying no and saying no is the right thing to say. Enduring pain and suffering, that's bravery, that's courage, and then managing fear. The dictionary says bravery is the mental or moral strength enabling one to venture, persevere, and withstand danger, fear, or difficulty firmly and resolutely. And I really like that because if you want to ex achieve something extreme, it's not that you're going to ha not have fear. Everybody has fear. Everybody needs to deal with it differently. If you want to achieve something extreme, you need to manage your fear, and you need to act in spite of the fear, and you need to act in spite of everything saying, I, I shouldn't do that. And these things, you know, I'm not talking about big dramatic things like you have to go try to visit the South Pole, but if you want to set out to do something um, that's really challenging, you should have a little fear of a little trepidation. So how can you become brave and courageous? Uh, I got this from the book The Courage Quotient, Quotient, which is really excellent. I haven't even made it all the way through yet, but it's find and join a culture of the brave. And I like to think that here at RFP we're actually trying to do that. And you've already, some of this is already instinctive to you because you're all sitting here today. So find and join a culture of the brave, whatever that may. People that achieve the things you want to achieve or at least understand how to go for the things that you want to go for too. You need to act even when your fear exceeds your initial willingness to do so, which means act even when your fear exceeds your initial willingness to act. Um, be, be brave daily. So do something every day that scares you. Create scenarios with uncertain outcomes. I like this one a lot, and I tend to do this a lot. I, the more I look back, the more I, I fail at a lot of the things I attempt to do. And I set my goals, in some cases, marathons especially, I set them probably unreasonably high, but I just go for it anyway. And I've gotten really close, but I've never quite gotten to where I want to be. Um, and so all these scenarios have uncertain outcomes. You can do this on a daily basis. Pick a workout you're going to do, have an uncertain outcome. Whatever it might be, just something you can do and you think, well, I don't know how that's going to turn out, so I probably shouldn't do it. If you don't know how it's going to turn out, that probably means you should do it. That's how you can be brave and courageous and achieve something extreme. So I'll skip to the bottom one. Run towards failure. Don't be afraid of failure. Like I said, I fail a lot. Like the, we had someone just come into the room and visit us. Todd and I have been talking earlier. I tried to achieve something last summer and I failed. I was really close, but I failed. And now it fuels me to go try it again and do it again. It's very disappointing. <laughs> now the last, so this second to last one, find a good luck charm. The, in the courage quotient, he talks, this is weird. So good luck charms, totems, whether you believe in spiritualism and God, whatever it is, good luck charms work. Science proves that they work. Here's a good example of that. My wife and I decided to climb Kilimanjaro with the Livestrong Foundation in 2014 to raise some money for cancer, uh, cancer programs. And one of the things we did was we got two vinyl signs that said Livestrong. And at all our fundraisers, we had people write the names of people that had either passed away from cancer or their own names or someone who was battling cancer at the time. And we said, we're going to carry this to the top of the mountain. Well, if you watch a documentary that was made about the climb, you'll hear me saying there, you know, we're driven by the names in this flag. Like, it's going to take a lot to keep us from the top of this mountain. And, and I think about that a lot because there was really nothing that was going to stop us from getting that. Like, the whole point was to get that flag to the top so we could show it off and actually take a picture. Like, the idea of not getting, of going, like, up to 19,100 feet and not taking a picture with that good luck charm, that flag, was ridiculous. There was no way that was going to happen. So there's power in these things. There's power in things of 
you know, if your daughter, your son, your wife, your significant other, whatever, gives you something, there's power in that, and embrace that. Don't run away from it and think, oh, that's stupid. Accomplishing those things, you know, Todd and some of the guys do races for the medals. You know, like the Little Rock Marathon has really cool medals. It's, it's a good luck charm. It's something you can say, I'm going for that, I'm going to achieve it. So those are really important and can be powerful. All right, let's keep on rolling. So survival mentality. You need to adapt survival mentality. I'll try to get through these fast. The guy on the right, Herbert Nitsch. You guys probably have not heard of him. He's a world record uh, free diver. He has made it down 702 feet deep on a single breath. He can hold his breath for nine minutes. He's the world record, obviously the world record holder. But think about what he's doing every time. He's adopted a survival mentality in that, much like Alex Honnold, he doesn't have a choice. There's Once you're down 700 feet, it's full commitment to the, you can't, it's either die. And again, when I do some of these, it's hard to pick who's doing a survival thing and who, which one of these is an example of survival and which one's an example of selective achievement. Um, Joe Simpson, uh, if you've ever heard of this book, it's called Touching the Void. Um, it's also a movie made, I think this happened in 1981. Joe Simpson and his partner Simon Yates were on a, I think a 24, 25,000 foot peak in South America. Joe Simpson fell, shattered his knee, broke his leg, big problems. They started doing a risky move where they would, one would, where Joe, Simon Yates would lower Simpson down the mountain because Simpson couldn't really, you know, move himself. Yates would, would slide him down the mountain using a length of rope. Then Yates would go down, start over again, lower him down. At some point, there was an avalanche. Something happened. Simpson got flung off of a cliff and was just dangling in midair, still attached to Yates. So Yates is on this incredibly steep mountain at 20,000 feet in the air, and he's hanging on, and he doesn't know if Joe Simpson's alive or dead. So he waits. I think he was there for six or seven hours, and eventually Yates is starting to get weak, and he's starting to slide, and he thinks, I... All he's got is dead weight on the other end. He has no idea what to do, so he takes out his knife and cuts the rope. Simpson, well, so Yates then, he's, of course, heartbroken, doesn't know if he did the right thing. He's freaking out. He hikes down, makes it to camp, tells him, I think Simpson's dead. I don't know. This is what happened. He was had a broken leg. Simpson now is on, he's on something that's going to probably be just, you know, he doesn't know what's about to happen, but he goes flying down the mountain falls into a crevasse, lands on an ice ledge. If he had fallen down in the crevasse, he would have died. He lands on some thin ice ledge. Now he's, he's got more injuries. He's still got broken legs. But he's alive, but he's in a crevasse. And he knows there's no way of rescue. Like, nobody's ever going to find him. It's just impossible at that altitude. So he happens to have a length of rope with him. So Simpson decides, all right, my only choice is to lower myself deeper into the crevasse and just hope against all hope that there's a way out of the crevasse that leads down the mountain, which doesn't generally happen. So full commitment, he hooks up, rappels down, gets to the bottom of the crevasse, starts crawling, finds his way, miraculously there's a way out of the crevasse. He crawls his way out of the crevasse and over the next three days he crawls along at 20 some thousand feet until he gets down the mountain and finds camp. and. The Yates and the other two guys that were there had packed up camp and were literally walking away. Like they were packing everything up and getting ready to leave and they heard a faint cry and it was Joe Simpson basically saying, don't leave me, <laughs> please. But it's an amazing story of survival. The physiological limits 
And so Joe's interesting. I don't have his book here with us, but he's written more books, and it's all about survivor's mentality and how that changed how he approaches things. And he still goes out and do these, does these things, but it's really amazing. So what is a survival mentality? So it's deciding to continue despite fear, fatigue, and uncertainty. Um, and we've all had all of those things. We've all, in everything we've done, we've had fear, fatigue, and uncertainty. We have to, so what's a survival versus a selective mentality? So self-handicapping, this is one I've worked really, this, this has been a little bit of a mind bender for me more recently, is self-handicapping, whether it's positive or negative. So at the marathon I did last weekend, I was decided to basically self-handicap by covering up my watch with a piece of tape so I couldn't see my, how fast I was running. I wanted to remove that stimulus. I kept it with me because I wanted to see the results afterwards. Um, but it was interesting to not have that input and to see how that reacted. But then the question is, am I self-handicapping in a good way or in a bad way? You know, for me, I was saying I wanted to experiment and see how it felt, but it's also an excuse when things go bad. I can say, well, I didn't know how fast I was going. It was not my fault. It was the watch's fault. But we do this a lot. If you hear anybody before they go into a race, they say, well, I didn't train very well. I didn't, you know, I, I hurt my foot. Oh, my, my mom's yelling at me today. We self-handicap all the time. And self-handicapping is really a selective endurance mentality. It's not a survival mentality. A survival mentality is, doesn't matter. I have to be fully committed, whatever it is, it is, and I gotta go. Now that's hard to balance, but it's just something to think about. You know, like I said earlier, stopping in a survival situation means death. Stopping in selective situation means feeling better. Try to find ways to blur that line. You don't have to do what Alex Honnold did. You don't have to dive 700 feet, but try to find a way. I think about this when I did my Ironman. I was, I was fully committed. My, tra I pr my training wasn't that great. It was fine. I didn't, I, but I was fully committed. I was going no matter what. There was, just like on Kilimanjaro, there was virtually nothing that was going to stop me from finishing that day unless they just cut off the time and said, you can't go anymore. But I was fully committed. It was more of a survival mentality. I've had some practice with that, with cancer diagnosis and things like that, but blur that line. Find a way to really make yourself so fully committed that there's no chance of stopping. And frankly, your life depends on health and happiness. And health and happiness are byproducts of a survival mentality approach, and I fully believe that. All right, so this is going to be unreasonable and unrealistic goals. Um, Let's talk about that for a second. So first case study, Julianne Kepke in 1981 was in a plane with her parents. The plane got struck by lightning. They were over Peru. The plane got struck by lightning about two miles in the sky. She was still strapped to her seat. She fell all the way to earth, bounced around in the trees, and uh, fell into the rainforest and lived. And she had m multiple broken bones. She didn't know where she was. She was 18 years old. She was totally lost. But um, she really... She had set a goal where she said, I'm going to get out of this. She said, I'm going to get out of here. She could have given up, waited for rescue, but she said, no, I need to help myself. Nobody's going to find me. That's a pretty unreasonable, re unrealistic goal considering the situation. So she traveled for nine days, no food. She had broken bones. She didn't know where to go. Her body was infested with worms and maggots and all her injuries. She finally found, I think, a logging camp where they gave her some gasoline. She poured gasoline on her arm, and the maggots came out in writhing and agony. It was quite a scene, but she, but she she attributes her survival to just deciding that even if it was unrealistic and it was unreasonable, she was going to just save herself one way or another. The other one is Bethany Hamilton, and this again, I don't know if this is a survival or a selective achievement, 
She was a professional surfer. She was paddling one day on her surfboard, and a tiger shark came up and bit her arm off just entirely, just lopped it right off. And so Bethany, instead of freaking out, she's probably a little in shock, just realized her arm was gone and just started to paddle in. And she eventually made it into shore and got some help. Since then, she's um, returned to professional surfing and has become a champion surfer again. That's pretty unrealistic. Most people said as soon as your arm's bitten, arm is bitten off, one, why would you want to get back in the water? And two, you're certainly not going to win any more championships. But she did. So the question is, is setting unreasonable and unrealistic goals a waste of time? Well, I don't think it is, and for various reasons. At the very least, it does these things. It breaks down conventional thinking. And I probably have this out of order, but conventional thinking basically gets conventional results. If you just do what everybody else does, you're probably going to get the same results. If you want to achieve something extreme, you got to be unconventional. And so even if you fail, you're going to learn something. I learn more from my failures than I do my successes. That's, everybody knows that. Um, studies have shown satisfaction with a failed, unreasonable goal is much higher than achievement of an accomplished, easier goal. You have to prepare for and enjoy failure as part of the process. This is not always fun because failure comes with negativity for yourself, from other people, but you just have to prepare for it and enjoy it. Just laugh at yourself a little bit. And then way at the bottom, you may actually achieve your unrealistic goal. So real life application. Think of what you'd like to achieve, but really feel you have no chance. Commit to finding a way. And take it seriously, but be kind of cool about it. Like don't, you know, if you're failing a little bit, don't freak out. It's not that big of a deal. You can find something else to do. All right, so one more to talk about. This one's short. You need to make extreme the norm. So make extreme normal. This is my guy, David Goggins. Does everybody know David Goggins? If you don't know David Goggins, go to the Joe Rogan podcast, listen to David Goggins on there. You'll want to run your head through a brick wall by the time you're done. David Goggins, without any, he was a Navy SEAL, so he's clearly a pretty tough guy, but he wanted to get into the Badwater Ultra Marathon. He called the race director. Race director said, you haven't even done a 100-mile run. Get out of here. David Goggins is like, I'm a SEAL. He's like, I don't care. You don't know what you're talking about, so go run a 100-miler, and I'll consider letting you in. So David Goggins... That was on a Wednesday. By that Saturday, he was on a track doing a 100-mile. It was actually a 24-hour run. He just wanted to get 100 miles. He did. He destroyed himself. He broke his bones. He got rhabdomyolysis. He was destroyed. He was bleeding. But he managed to finish it. He did 100 miles, no training. He had run maybe six miles once before that. It was totally unreasonable and unrealistic. Goggins then got in touch. He was pretty proud of himself, so he called the race director Badwater and said, hey, I did 100. Let me in. The guy said, "You? it was a 24-hour run. You only did 100. Goggins was like, oh, man, you got to be kidding me because he, he had gone for like 20 hours instead of 24. Turns out Goggins ended up completing Badwater ultramarathon twice. He finished third once. He holds the world record for pull-ups in 24 hours. I don't even know what the number is, but it's insane. It's thousands and thousands of pull-ups. Um, he's done more than 50 ultra endurance races, former Navy SEAL. Now, what he says is he, he's a Navy SEAL, so being uncommon is tough, but he wants to be uncommon amongst uncommon people. And frankly, if you're in this group already, you're kind of uncommon because you've already tried to achieve things that most people don't want to try to achieve, or you have achieved them. So try to be uncommon amongst uncommon people. You will inspire others to do other things, you know, and to be uncommon as well. He also says, and this goes back to everything the central governor, he believes that most of us stop and we think we're exhausted, but we've only used 40% of our capacity by that point. He tells a story in his 100-mile run. He got to about 
I don't know, 60, 70 miles, and he was convinced he was 100% done. His feet, he was bleeding, and he was, he was peeing blood. It was just a disaster. But then he went out and he took off, and he ended up running faster than he had the previous, the first 60 miles. So his where he started to realize, when you think you're done, you're probably only at about 40%. And I'm not so sure that he's not right about that. So some mind-bending concepts to ponder, some things that might just change the way you think about it. Pain is your friend. We're always upset. We're always worried about pain. Like, oh, if we feel pain, I'm sure I should probably stop. I should probably take a rest day. My legs are tired. Pain is helpful. They did a study of cyclists. They, I don't know how they did it. They drugged them up, rigged them so that they would feel no pain. So they didn't feel the physiological effects of how hard they were working. What they did was, so by the time these cyclists got off the bike, they were all just exhausted. They couldn't walk. Their legs were shaking. They were falling over. But the amazing thing, because they couldn't feel any pain, they didn't have that regulator. But the amazing thing was they didn't ride any faster than they had a month or two before when they just did a regular time trial. They actually had gone a little slower because they didn't pain as a regulator. They had erratic pacing. They went out too fast, too early. They just they didn't. They had no management. So pain is your friend. Pain helps you do stuff. You can increase your pain tolerance with high effort training. That was important because the pain tolerance study where it says you can increase your pain tolerance, actually you it has to be intense hard training. It can't be, you know, conventional training. You get pain tolerance when you really push yourself to the limit. You have to suffer to make yourself tougher. And this is mine. I personally feel that this prepares you for real life adversity. So Samuel Marcor, Tim Noakes, all these guys have they've determined that sense of effort determines your limits. So anything that moves the effort dial in your head up or down affects how far or fast you can run. So all the physical cues are real, but they just contribute to how hard an effort feels, not how hard it actually is, for the most part. I know that's tough to think about because it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. You think it's the opposite. You've, your heart's beating, your legs are tired, so then you feel fatigued. What all this science points to is that it's the opposite. So we have to find a way to overcome that. And you have to train to adapt to those cues and accept them without the desire to slow down from the effort. This is really hard. Todd and I, like we've talked about a million times, we suffer in the heat. And there's, I have tried everything I know how so far to try to break through that and to continue and to adapt to those. But it just gets tougher and tougher all the time. And sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. There's a way to do it. And we're hoping that some of this will um, turn on the light bulb there. Part of that is train your brain to become more accustomed to mental fatigue and perceived effort may become more normal. Now the conclusions here, unfortunately, is that we are all wimps, but it's not really our fault. So studies show that mental effects of heat are much greater than the actual physiological effect. Um, a hot brain is an overheated body. So really what, there's, what science proves is that your brain is what's getting hot, and it's sending all these signals to your body and saying, we're hot, we're overheated, slow down. That's where the swishing a carb drink in your mouth is supposed to fool your brain because your brain then thinks, oh, we're drinking something and help is on the way, energy's on the way. So you have to find a way to fool your brain and to keep your brain cool. One of the physiological solutions for this is putting ice on your head. And I've, have, I've done that before and you put it in the brim of your cap and I have better performances when my brain is actually cool. So we always try to cool down the body, drinking water, drinking something. You gotta cool your brain off because that's where that central governor is that's saying, hey body, we feel terrible but it's the brain that's overheated, you can fool it. This one is tough too, but I really like this. I've thought about this a lot. Perceived effort is not a byproduct or a result of the physiological strain, 
that is causing you to slow down. So perceived effort is not a by, so the physiological strain is not causing the perceived effort to be harder. It's the other way around. So what they've proven is that when people go out in hot weather, the brain knows it's hot. The brain has seen the weather. Your, your mind has seen the weather. You know it's hot, you know it's humid, you know it's summer in Mississippi. Your brain basically pre-self-handicaps you and says, it's gonna be bad, it's gonna be really bad. And so your body goes out and then the, brain, the body just, the heat just confirms what your brain is thinking. So they say that this fatigue, this perceived effort, is like a protective emotion that comes over, and your brain says, oh, this is too dangerous for us, so, you got, so we have to slow down. And the way it tells you to slow down is by saying, look, your legs feel terrible, you're sweating a lot. So there's a way to overcome this, um, and we're going to try to figure that out. For guys like Todd and I, we really need all the help we can get. So like I said, fatigue is a protective emotion rather than a physiological state. Um, exhaustion or fatigue is a conscious choice rather than a mechanical failure. These are the big takeaways for me and things that we need to think about because there's a way for our brains to help us overcome our physiological limits. It's tough, but if you start with thinking of these are, the, these are true, let's just assume these are true, um, there's a way to overcome that and to realize that fatigue necessarily isn't always physiological fatigue, it's your brain telling, it's a brain creating fatigue to protect itself, so you have to trick your brain into thinking it doesn't need to protect itself. So, a couple other things just to think about. Conformance is an enemy to action. This goes back to conventional thinking. I kind of came up with this on my own. Don't believe your own mind. Your mind has preconceived notions about what you can and cannot accomplish. Don't believe it. Don't believe what others say about your goals, ambitions, or abilities. All of us have had naysayers at some point. Somebody thinks we can't do that. We can't go as fast as we want. We shouldn't do that. It's stupid. You don't know what you're talking about. Don't believe them. Find your differentiators and don't forget your good luck charm. So let's take it to the finish line. So here's what we're going to do today. Based on everything you've just learned, or heard, I should say, I'm going to pass these out. If somebody will come grab these. And what we're going to do today, I have one pen. I want you to do three things on this sheet. And if you're listening to this later on the podcast, I want you to do this as well. I want you to write down one unrealistic goal that you have or want to think about now. What's one unreal? It, I want this to be really unrealistic. Like if you want to, if if you've run a half marathon, but you want to do a 50 miler, it doesn't have to be. We're not saying when we want to do this. Just think of something you really want to do that's completely unrealistic. And then the next one we're going to do is I want you to commit to one thing, one limit you're going to break. Like I said, you're going to become an early morning guy. You're going to, you're going to eat different. You're going to eat something different every single day. Some limit that you have. You know what your limiters are. Think of one limit you have that you're going to break. And then start that habit of breaking. And then at the end, I want you to write something you learned today, some takeaway you got today. Um, and then I want to hear what that is, and we'll talk about it later. Cause, or, or it's just something you can take home and you can ponder. <laughs> so that is the first edition of Extreme Achievement. I anticipate there will be more of this because I'm just really getting started in this, in research in this field. I call it research. I'm not really a researcher. But there's a lot of interesting science. There's a lot of interesting stories. There's a lot of stuff out there that will help us achieve on an extreme basis and really achieve the things we want to achieve. So that's all I got. Thanks for listening.